0: So this uh, to get a grasp of where we're at right now, we know that the the church really in earnest in terms of the spirit coming down upon many began at Pentecost and that 3000 that they were converted as the as the early church began to grow. We know that quickly they were arresting apostles and putting them in prison. We know that, that James is killed, uh, uh, Peter is in prison, but God delivers him from there. There, there. there have been apostles who have been beaten. We know then that Stephen, one of the early deacons in that church, in preaching the gospel was taken and stoned to death. And the scripture had told us that following that stoning, persecution had broken out that day on the church. Now, in that persecution, God had used that persecution mightily because we remember Jesus had told the, the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you, until you're clothed with power. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what? To the uttermost part of the earth. We know this. But when the Spirit came on them on the day of Pentecost, what did they do? They, they were his witnesses in Jerusalem and Jerusalem and yeah. And and you're thinking, what's going wrong? Why are they not going out from there? But in the purposes of God, there was going to, he will get his work done. Now, some might say, well, well, so he allowed the persecution. Nothing happens in this world that he does not allow. We take great comfort in that reality that he is absolutely sovereign. And he works his purposes out even in the days of persecution. Even in the painful path and experiences that we sometimes face. You know, we, we all love, and, and, and rightfully so, Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd. You know, he leads me beside the still waters. And we like that. But that's not the whole psalm, is it? It also says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So not all of the places that I go with my shepherd. Now, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. They're following me. Those blessed things are following me. Even what? When I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. We've got to understand that in the providence of God, we've all faced those seasons where all is good and easy, and we, and we think, oh, if only this could last forever. Or some of us, the moment things are good, we get nervous. Uh-oh, something's about to blow up. Something is about to go seriously wrong because this never lasts, Right? for some reason when we're in the in the painful part of our journey we we're, we never in the midst of the agony say something's about to go good you know this is about to end but that's also true we go through these various seasons and God is sovereign in all of them now he worked that out and from the day of the martyrdom of stephen Uh, persecution broke out on the church in earnest. As a result, many of the Jews were scattered, the believers, and they began going about speaking the gospel. And we know, first of all, exclusively to the Jews, but then in Antioch, they also began to share with others. God was accomplishing his work in the midst of all of this trial and difficulty. Then, that man that God had, had allowed... To be his committed enemy, Saul, who we later call Paul, that one who had taken it as his journey uh, to be the king of crushing the name of Jesus. What happened to him? On his way to destroy, God, God met him on that road. Jesus revealed himself to him, and all of a sudden, one who was an enemy. Is now an emissary. One who was absolutely against. And ready to make others die for the name. Now he himself is going to die. It was told him. He who had made so many suffer. Ananias had to go to him. And he was told how much he would suffer for the name. Things turned all around. And he flees Damascus. As they were trying to kill him. He gets back to Jerusalem. And begins ministering for a time there. And then he flees Jerusalem. Because they were trying to kill him. He who oft tried to kill them. Is now the one who is trying to be killed. Now verse 31 now takes us to the end of that. Once he's sent off. It tells us now in chapter 9 verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea. Galilee and Samaria. Had peace. And was being built up. So. during it's I want you to notice this. During the period of persecution. What were God's people doing? They were going about. Proclaiming the gospel. Now during the time of peace. What are God's people to be doing? Going about and proclaiming the gospel. This is something I can share with you brothers and sisters that's so ultimately helpful. What is right and wrong in the eyes of God? What is pleasing and honoring in the eyes of God? How we ought to act, how we ought to obey, how we ought to live? It doesn't change with the seasons. It doesn't change based on our circumstances. It doesn't change with the millenniums. It doesn't change regardless of what supposed generation you're from. Because we have our ways of speaking of different generations. You know, the older people will will say, you know, this younger generation, they don't honor. They don't respect their elders like we did, you know. And they also don't know what good music is. You know, this younger, you know, and the older generation thinks the younger generation. Well, these older, they don't get us. They don't understand us. We just live differently and we think differently. But here's the beauty. Whether it is is a five-year-old child or a hundred-year-old man, the will of God is the same. The gospel is the same. The life that we're called to in grace is the same. Whatever country, whatever continent, whatever cultural situation, it's all the same. It's the word of God. That's why what initially began in Jerusalem and Judea, it's not merely a Jewish gospel. It's the same gospel that goes to the ends of the earth. It's the, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded. The same gospel is to be preached in all places. The same teaching is to be taught in all places. Isn't that great? Isn't that comforting? We don't have to sit down and form committees to figure out, uh, you know, how ought we do church in this new generation. Now, scary, you can go into bookstores and there will be things. How to to organize a church to reach millennials or whatever it may be. The millennials are just as dead in their trespasses and sin as the boomers were and everybody else. And the only way to reach them one way, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's it. I mean, how hard is that to understand? That we seek, t- tweak it a little bit. Twist it. Can we improve the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. It is once for all delivered to the saints unchanging. Right? Can we change anything of the wonderful commandments where Christ reveals what pleases Him in our lives? Not only can we not, should we? Never. 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 But sadly, you and I look around, give a little look at the television, a little listen to the radio on occasion. And we see people are doing that. They turn it into a little bait and switch, a little marketing technique. You know, churches become run by CEOs, etc. It gets a little bit messy, doesn't it? But it's to be the same. And what I say, see, in the season of persecution, God made sure the gospel got out. In the season of peace, I love that it's, here is this peace going on. It says the church was edified, it was being built up, and it multiplied. Mm. And here is an example of that in verse 32. Here is the first one, and this is where Peter, to the paralyzed, he goes, there's, there's three people he goes to in this, and I call them the paralyzed, the passed away, and the pariah. And we'll explain those as we go through. First of all is the paralyzed, that's Aeneas. But as we as we get into this, I don't want you to miss something. When he goes there, you got in the early days. Now this is this is something very important. Many of us will know this in the life of Christ. Christ in distinguishing himself as the Messiah, he came into the scene and he was doing things no one had done. He he was healing the blind. Those. Born blind. Things that no one had ever heard of before. He was, he was healing the lame. Not just a person who had some sort of invisible knee injury. But those who had withered limbs. He, he was healing people that were, that were covered with, with leprosy. Spotted and visible, and he would say, Stretch out your hands. And as the hands stretched out, what would happen? Withered hands would be restored, leopard hands would be made clean. There, no weird shows or weird gimmicks, absolute power to where men would be able to sit back and say, Wow, who is this? and they would come to know he is the Son of God. He would stop the wind and the waves and they would say, what manner of man is this as he yielded up his spirit and says it is finished on the cross. What happens? An earthquake that splits the rock, bringing to an end three hours of darkness to where even the Roman guard at the foot of the cross says, what? Surely this was the son of God. So demonstrable. But even shortly after that. Jesus meets. Some of his disciples. Who are on the road to Emmaus. And they said. We had hoped that he was the one. But he was put to death. And what did Jesus say? Oh you foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that is written by the prophets. They did not understand. That he would give up his life. And he would take it up again. Because who had ever before had the power to give up their life and take it up again? Jesus demonstrated that. Now, so following that, the thought was, well, now he's dead. Remember, he appeared mainly to the apostles. On one occasion, though, he appeared to more than 500 at once, but mainly to the apostles to continue to instruct them about their appointed ministry. Then, when he sent the Holy Spirit upon them on the day of Pentecost and following that, those apostles, it says often in the early book of Acts, by the hand of the apostles, many were healed, by the hand of the apostles. God was using through them to demonstrate the same Jesus who did these things, he's not dead. His power has not ceased. They would step forward. And they would say. In the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And what would happen? Yes. because How can you speak in the name of one who is dead? They weren't speaking in the name of the one who is dead. But in the one name of the one who is risen. Now. Listen carefully to something I do want to share. To set the stage of, of what, we're, what we're going to be looking at here. Because I don't want us to miss this. In Luke verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 24 and following, Jesus is speaking here and he says this. He said this, truly I say to you, a prophet's not acceptable in his hometown. We know this, right? But in truth I tell you, listen, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. In the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel. At the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things. All in the synagogue. Were filled with wrath. That always gets me. Jesus recounts absolute historical biblical facts. About the power of God. And the response of men is wrath. They're upset. Now the reason I mention that is we would be unwise to pretend that as Peter goes down to Lydda, Aeneas is the only lame man in the whole town. Likewise, we would be unwise to think that as he moves over to Joppa, that uh, uh, Tabitha, Dorcas, is the only one who died. Indeed, throughout the early church, there are going to be a lot of believers who will die. A lot of believers who will be lame. But God chose, as as in the past, chose to feed through that widow and chose to cleanse that one. In these two places, God had appointed these two individuals. And what I don't want us to miss in all of this is the reason why the priority is not merely that a lame person would walk or that a dead person will live. The priority was to continue to make known, you have all heard that Jesus was crucified. I want you to know this. He is risen and he is powerful. Look at the words, uh, if you would with me, um, in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, he, 33, uh, there he found, as he came down, and, and he's ministering to the saints in Lydda, uh, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, again, why is it giving us these details? Bedridden for eight years, he was paralyzed. So, he was not born Paralyzed. Now, I get whoever's using the King James, it says palsy instead of paralyzed. But paralyzed carries the idea a little much clearer. Eight years before, he had either met with an accident or an illness or something that had caused this man to now become bedridden and paralyzed. We also come to find out as we read through there, verse 35, it says, and all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him. So there is, a, there is a sense in which this text seems to kind of unfold. He was a known fellow. See, Lida is is a little township, but Sharon is, is a whole region that spreads between Lida and Joppa. So it's it's a it's a significant region. How would all, all of the people or so many of the people throughout that area know this man and see this man? It seems very likely. Now listen closely. When I say very likely, what does that mean? It doesn't, It means it's not 100%. It means we're doing our best to make clear understanding from the scriptures. Now I want to make it clear when I'm saying word of God says this and when I'm saying... It seems to indicate this. When word of God says this, it's absolute. When it seems to indicate it might be helpful. So let's note the difference between those two things. Seems to indicate that this man was relatively known in his area. Because if some guy walks by. That I've never seen walk by before. I don't usually say. Wow, he's walking. How did that happen? You know, Unless. I had known of him when he was walking. And then I also knew what? He's no longer walking. Something happened to him. That was well known in the area. So that when he was healed. Many saw him. And as a result of that. It says they turned to the Lord. So God had a strategic purpose involved. In the selection of this individual. And remember. Um. If someone merely gets back their legs in this life, but have not their sins forgiven, what use is it? It is, it's better to go through this life missing an eye. If your right eye causes you to sin, gadget out. If your hand causes you to sin, it's better to go through this life maimed with things missing than it is to miss out on the kingdom, right? I mean, the scriptures lay out a clear priority on those things, and we shouldn't miss it. Even in the context of of how this unfolds, uh, your minds probably will remember what Jesus did very similar, healing a man who was lame in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where they come, the friends with great faith, and they open the way and they lower their friend down through the roof. You remember that, right? And Jesus, it says, seeing their faith, not his, says to that man in Mark chapter 2, verse 5 and following, Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Which is a strange thing to say, right? I ask you this, had he come there in order to have his sins forgiven? Or had they brought him there hoping he would be restored to walking? When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, do you know what happened? His sins are forgiven. But you know where he still is? He's still laying on the bed. He's not healed, is he? And, and the... Pharisees who are gathered around there. They say to themselves what they say to themselves. Who does he think he is? God alone can forgive sin. Hint. He thinks he's God. Because he is. I mean, you're asking the right question, but you're not coming to the right conclusion. You're aware no one can forgive sin but God jesus just forgave sin put the pieces together my friend but they did not did they what was their response blasphemy and jesus says what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up take your mat and walk what's easier to say and realistically for everyone gathered in the room if you're talking just to just to say the words they're equally easy I mean, words are words, but which one in that room could say either of those things and get something to happen? (laughs) I mean, think about it. It, One by one, they could all walk past the guy laying there and say, uh, Rise up and walk. What's going to happen? Nothing's gonna happen. So basically, uh, what they can't do by any of their words, they need to understand Jesus can accomplish both by his words. And more than that, the forgiveness of sin is far greater significance and worth and importance than the healing. They needed to get that. And he said, so that you will understand that the son of man has the power to forgive sin. I say to this man, rise up and walk. Take your mat. And what did he do? He rose up and walked. And so that healing was, the glory wasn't the healing. It was the testimony. The healing ultimately served as a testimony that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. If all you get caught up on is, wow, the guy's walking. You completely missed it. Even the design and the healing of Aeneas isn't so that people could just be impressed with him. The whole design is this note this there is one who has the power over the body and the soul. There is one who can do things that no one else can do. A man like Aeneas. Who is, uh, even his name, his name means laudable. Someone who you praise a lot. Which which generally it's considered very likely that because of a name like that he was coming from a pretty impressive family. They expected that their son would be lavished with public praise. So it seemed to be an influential family. These are just speculations. But uh, here he is and suddenly now, eight years. What happens when someone has an injury or an illness? Normally what happens, somebody call a doctor, right? And the doctors come in and clearly could do nothing. What happens usually, we call a doctor and he can do nothing. Call another doctor. (laughs) Because you always want a second opinion, uh, uh, someone to weigh in who, who, who might have a different experience, who might be broader. Eight years will tell you what. Whatever earthly means were there, whatever earthly options were there, exhausted. Men had no way to meet an Aeneas' need. But who could? now, and this is, that's the important thing. I'm hearing nicely, Christ. The answer was not the church. The answer was not Peter. The answer is Christ. Peter was a servant of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. But Christ is Lord of all. Amen. And so, that's why I love the the way, in in Acts chapter 3, he had said, uh, silver and gold have I none but such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk right we remember that one here he says it a little bit differently because the other one was a beggar Aeneas is likely not a beggar he's probably not in need of silver and gold so no need to say that what he does is he calls him by name you know which potentially indicates that he's even known that that's why I'm coming there. Remember, Ananias was told just earlier in this chapter, you need to go on this street to this house. There's a man there who's blind named Saul. This is what you're going to do to him. It's not a huge leap for us to fathom the likelihood that Peter understood as he's there in Lydda, Go and find Aeneas. And it says he found him. And what? Heal this man. Because he says with absolute confidence. And I love the wording here. It's in the present tense. He says Aeneas. Jesus. Heals you. Jesus Christ. Heals you. That is Christ himself. Now presently. Wielding his power. Is he dead? no he is alive he risen he reigns he rules and he continues to carry out his powerful purposes and so it's beautiful to see how this unfolds as he's there serving the things Jesus Christ heals you then it goes on to say this immediately he rose and all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him and they turned to the lord that's great isn't it i mean now what i want us to not miss in this is something there the scripture often will tell us things but there's not many details but there are things that are clearly implied as aeneas went around and or they who went around with him they would be saying How is it, Aeneas, that you are now walking? Because remember, they didn't turn randomly to anyone. They turned to the Lord, which when we come to the new unfolding of the New Testament, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So they turned to the Lord because they knew it was the Lord they were to turn to. So Aeneas became this testimony. How is it that you're now walking? Yeah. And I love this. It's not necessarily a testimony of Peter. Is it? No. It is Jesus Christ. The living and risen Lord. Healed me. And more than that. He commands all men everywhere. Turn from their sin. Turn from their false gods. And follow him. Because what did they do? They turned. I love that, 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 that terminology. It, it, you know, Because too often in modern Christianity, we've got this picture of Christianity that's just a little bit of a nod and a smile. You know? You want to be saved? You want Jesus? I see your head. All right, I see that movement. You're saved. No, no, no. It, it, it's, not, it's not just a nod and a smile. It's a, I was going this way. I was living for these things, and now what? Now I'm going after the Lord. Everything else I was going after, I'm not going after it anymore. Now I'm following Christ. I'm walking in His footsteps. I'm following His plan. I'm living for His name. It was about me, or it was about my business, or it was about my family, or it was about my country, or it was about a host of other things. Not all of which are inherently evil. But there is a sense in which everything is inherently idolatrous if it is in the place of preeminence. Christ must have preeminence. Now he goes on from there. And, and he, as he's in that area, he, he, we go on to the very next one. And it says this um, in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. Now for most of us, that doesn't help at all, right? I mean, Tabitha, here's what it means, Dorcas. Now now for me, that's a problem because when I was younger and my brothers, we would get, want to mock one another, we'd say, you're a Dorcas. You know, you're a big dork. Get out of here, Dorcas, you know, which is different than this. You know, this. that seems like a bad name, an undesirable one. This was more a beautiful one. And again, I'm going to have to help you a little bit with that. Both Tabitha and Dorcas, some of your Bibles hopefully have little footnotes. It means gazelle or antelope. Now, I know that, that very few of us have ever gone to our significant other, our, our lovely and, and beautiful wives and said, you remind me of an antelope. You know, you're looking very gazelle today. I mean, it just, you know, but cultures change. Again, when we read the description of the beautiful bride in Song of Solomon, it's like, ooh, boy, she must have been hideous. Uh, you know, her neck was, oh my. I mean, it's a strange picture to us, but all of those were... Things of beauty and things of value. And you got pomegranates and all these different things happening that give a different picture in different cultures. This This was a name of beauty. A name of significance. And concerning this particular woman, more than just her name, which anybody can give a name. It says this of her at the end of verse 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. You know, it's, it's just a simple phrase there. She was full of good works next church. That's not something she did once in a while to check off the boxes. You know, every once in a while I better do something good so that, you know, my good outweighs the bad. So that God will smile on me. I just want to keep getting the blood. No, that's not where her mind is. Her heart was she was full of good works and charity. Now, it lends itself to the kinds of phrasing that. If somebody were to describe you and I. And say. You are full of. Fill in the blank. Hopefully it would be good works and charity. You know. Sometimes it, people might say hot air. Or, or it can get worse than that. It, but whatever it may be. That you know. This wasn't her testimony. It wasn't. Hey Tabitha get up there. And tell, tell us about yourself. Well first of all. I'm a person who's full of good works and charity. you know that's not it's like, what huh you know, she wasn't in some weird pageant uh, the, This is what people said of her. This is what characterized her and and actually it's not something that should uniquely and exclusively characterize her. and the idea of charity there isn't simply giving to the needy or alms it's the idea of someone with sympathy. Charitableness, compassion, someone who gives of their heart and of their goods. Um, Remember, the scripture says this. Jesus says of believers in the same way. So let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works. And what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. Always love that because you want them to see your good works, so that you will get praised. So they will be impressed by you know. You want them to see it. So that he will get the glory. Now he only gets the glory. If they know the reason. Why you do what you do. Is for him. Like the reason. People only turn to the Lord. When they see Aeneas. If they understand. It is a testimony. To the risen Lord. Who even as he. Can heal the body. Has proven to be the one. Who can forgive sin. Here with her. She had been full of acts of charity. It even talks about these widows. Who were there and gathered. The scriptures remind us a couple of times. In Titus it says that we are those. That he has Titus 2.14. Purified for himself. A people for his own possessions. Who are zealous for good works. So this should be something that. Is all the people of God. In Titus three eight. Uh, People are urged to be careful to devote themselves to good works. I've met some dear believers, you know, and I know their intentions are in the right place and I appreciate their intentions. They say, We're not supposed to be devoted to good works, we're to be devoted to Jesus. And I like what they're saying because we are supposed to be devoted to Jesus, but they think that somehow in our devotion to Jesus, that cancels out or excludes a complimentary devotion to good works. No, no, no. One of the ways you show your devotion to Jesus. Practically is by what? Being devoted to good works. How, you dare, how dare you say that? Um, I read it. The Bible said in Titus 2. I mean Titus 3, eight. Be careful so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It says in 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Well, that, you know, so what's weird is sometimes we can become so Christian that we're more Christian than the Bible. Does that make sense? Not really But you get what I'm saying, right? I'm so so Christian that my devotion is singular. I will never use the term devotion except to Jesus alone. It's like, wait a second. The scripture itself calls us to be devoted to other things. Not in exclusion to Christ, but as part of our devotion to Christ. You know? And because, again, those sweet people sometimes say, I don't want to be devoted to good works. They're saying that because they want to be lazy. Christians. Whereas it said in Titus 2.14 that they will be, we will be zealots for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he has determined beforehand that we should walk in them. This is always part of God's plan. In the in the When we have turned from where we were going to Christ, the new path of following Christ is filled with good works and charity. Amen? I don't know how we would potentially miss that. But I want to note this briefly. In in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul was thinking he might be close to death. And he says this, I am hard pressed between the two, whether to live or to die. My desire is to be with Christ. That's hard for us to understand in our modern day and age. What he's saying is. Death would actually be way better. My desire to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh. Is necessary on your account. So what he's saying is in his. Uh, whatever happens if i die that's better for me if i live that's better for you worse for me but better for you and then he goes on to say i know that i am convinced of this i know that i will remain and continue with you all this is not this is not my dying time you know i'm not going to get the better thing i'm going to be left here for the worst. So sometimes we look at Tabitha. Remember, he goes in, and I want to note this. Jesus heals you, he says to Aeneas. To Tabitha, he doesn't touch her. He doesn't raise hands her. Neither to Aeneas. He had just spoke. Jesus heals you. To her, he didn't even speak to her until what? It says he went aside and he prayed. And after he prayed, he turned and said, "Tabitha, arise." And only when she opened her eyes did he reach out and take her hand after she'd already been brought to life. So nobody could say that the power came from him again. The scriptures are trying to make it remarkably clear. But note this. Our tendency might be to think this. Oh, what a blessed woman. What a special woman she must have been to be able to be resuscitated back to life. Yeah, how wonderful. To, again, have to deal with the uncomfortable climate. Stub her toe. Have people say mean things about her. Sleepless nights. Eat some bad food and stomach problems. Old age. Injury. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Right? Well, whatever the case may be, the fact is, it was not a better thing for her. When someone's brought back, to be with Christ is far better. So when she's brought back, nobody should say, oh, she must have been especially loved by God or by Jesus because he brought her back. What do you mean? (laughs) It was not good for her. But you know what? She was a woman full of charity and good works. And that clearly, if you read that passage, overflowed to all the widows who were in her area. They're showing the clothes, some of which they were probably wearing. She made this. She made this for me. She helped us out. She was just, it was to the benefit of so many people for her to be brought back to life. But not necessarily her benefit when we, when we see that. And so when, I, when we look at these, it's interesting because both of these two were in beds. Both of these two, Aeneas and Tabitha, were brought out of these, their beds. Both of these two were hopeless and spent. One was paralyzed. One was passed away. There is nothing that they could do. There is nothing that anyone could do. Indeed, there is nothing that the apostle could do. But there is one. As we oft say, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And he healed Aeneas. Aeneas. He raised up Tabitha. Now some died and remained dead. Some were lame and remained crippled. But these were raised up. That it might be known that Christ himself has been raised up. That he is living and he's still doing these same things that he was doing in his life. Now lastly, we will look and it's it's very brief because we get into him next week. At the pariah. We've seen the paralyzed and the pass away. Look at the pariah with me. The very end. This is verse um, 43. And he stayed in Joppa many days. With one Simon. A tanner. That's a small thing in in, in simple ways. And, and we don't generally have tanners in our area. We probably, most of us probably haven't met many leathersmiths. You know. this This is not too distinct from the concept of taxidermy it's interacting with dead animals and as such for the jew what would happen when a jew encountered a dead animal or a carcass they were unclean and so you know generally nobody's gonna stay in the home of a tanner because he's constantly, under the old Jewish economy, ceremonially unclean. So he would be a pariah. He would be one that they would they would be thankful for what he does and the leather goods and other things they benefit from. But he's not going to be their close buddy. They're not going to hang out in this house. They, there's going to... It's, it's not a highly esteemed position. Actually, they were generally looked at by the Jewish people as constantly half unclean. But where did Peter stay? I love this. Because we see the same kind of thing. When Christ is going through, there's many people who were pariahs. Considered undesirables and outcasts, weren't there? Tax collectors. Harlots. And, and Jesus didn't join them in their sin. He didn't approve them of their sin. He didn't, he, he didn't say, he, he, come, come as you are. He said, come, but sin no more. You don't bring your sin with you as you come. You know, as you are right now, come. But as you come, you don't come as you are. Because when by grace you come... In Christ, in faith, you're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. So yes, whatever someone's sin is, they would bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery, wouldn't they? And Jesus would say, go and sin no more. He did not slight on sin. But what others saw the sin and considered them outcasts. Saw the unclean and considered them outcasts. But we must understand this. No matter who they are in society. If Aeneas is a man of significance. And if Tabitha is a woman of influence. Simon was somewhat a man of ill repute. And yet the gospel and the grace and the love of the saints goes to them all. Amen. Amen. We look at one another and there's no distinction. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. We are all one in Christ. He's broken down that dividing wall. So in this, we see the power of God unto salvation and the power of God unto the unity of the saints in the life of a paralyzed man. Being brought back to healing. In the life of a woman who passed away. Being brought back to life. And in the life of a pariah. Receiving full communion and acceptance with an apostle. And don't miss this. At the end of both of those two testimonies it says this. When they saw him many turned to the Lord. When they saw Tabitha raised from the dead. Many believed in the Lord. The highest priority. That we have with regard to our earthly mission. Is to declare the glory of the Lord. The power of the Lord. The purity of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord. That all the ends of the earth might turn. And might know him. Whether they were idolaters. Whether they were drunkards. Whatever their background. That they might know. In Christ. There is no distinction. He brought, brings near that which the world may shun as far off. And we are all by grace, one in him. Let's pray. Again, Lord, so thankful that we could spend time in your word and we just love it so much. It's, it's hard not to get carried away and, and stay in it and embellish it for hours. But Lord, we do know that though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so I pray that you would be pleased to take the time that we spent. And just begin to stir up worshipful hearts and that we'd go back from this and we'd talk about it. We'd reread these passages and think of the amazing precision that, for, that you were pleased to heal and raise particular individuals. Not merely for their benefit, but for your glory. Glory and to accomplish your salvific purposes in the lives of many as they come to recognize the power and certainty of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you all praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.